An Airbus A300 crashes into mountains just miles from the airport. How did communication and a series of misdirections cause GA-152 to crash? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, for Episode 6. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we want to wish you guys a happy Thanksgiving! To all of our listeners in the U.S. Yeah, this is coming out the week of Thanksgiving, so we hope that you're with your families and you're having a good time. And eating all the food. Yeah, we're going to eat like three different meals. I'm going to get so fat. We have like traditional Thanksgiving and two Friendsgivings, and I'm going to gain all the weight. Yep. So much exercise is necessary. Is it? (laughs) <laughs> that said, we're very thankful for all of you guys listening and participating in all of this every week, and we really thank you for helping us grow this every week and enjoying it. and Supporting us. Supporting us. All right, Nick, so what are we covering this week? So today we are doing Garuda Indonesia Flight 152. This was a flight on the 26th of September, 1997, on an Airbus A300B4, the tail number of... Papa Kilo dash Gulf Alpha India. Indonesia is a state-run airline, and the aircraft was 15 years old at the time, belonging to Indonesia its entire life. By the way, I saw that they still use this flight number. They do still use this flight number, which is bizarre, actually. The flight was from Sokarno Hatta International Airport in Jakarta to Polonia International Airport in Medan in North Sumatra. It was scheduled for two hours. There were 222 passengers and 12 crew on board. The captain was Raymond Wayogo. He was 42 years old. He had 11,978 hours at the time of the incident, of which 782 were in the aircraft type. And the first officer was Tata Zualdi. He was 41 years old at the time. It's unclear how many hours he had total. Even the report doesn't seem to make it very clear. But he had 709 hours on the type. That was known. And hadn't he just become a first officer after being flight engineer? Yes, he was flight engineer, and he'd only been a first officer for a handful of hours. The flight departed Jakarta at 11.41 a.m. local time. The majority of the flight was very routine. Upon approach, the flight descended into a dense cloud of smoke that was caused by fires in South Sumatra at the time and had been affecting the area of Medan for quite some time up to this point. The ATIS, or the Automated Terminal Information Service for Medan, was reporting a visibility of 500 meters at the time that GA-152 was beginning their approach into the area. Which is like 1,600 feet, for those of you who don't know meters. It's very little visibility. They were flying into a very, very dense cloud of smoke, and their visibility was essentially zero once they were in it. Before the flight, the flight crew had reported to the airline's office at Jakarta for their pre-flight briefing... This briefing included information about weather, which the person giving the briefing stated that the destination airport was reporting 400 meters visibility at the time, so even lower than it was when they got into the area, which we should mention is below the airport's minimum operating requirements of 800 meters. There was also a NOTAM, or a notice to airmen, for the VOR in the area, which is a navigational tool used by the instruments of the aircraft to help it navigate in the area. 
that was restricted operation, so it was essentially not operational for their use. It was more of a reference point than it was an actual operational tool for the instruments. But none of this was used to stop the flight from continuing. Which is dumb. Yes. At 1.12 p.m., the flight crew was instructed by Medan ATC to descend to 3,000 feet and expect runway 05 for landing and to reduce their speed to 220 knots to make way for a departing aircraft on the runway. At 1.20 p.m., GA-152 requested a speed of 250 knots below 10,000 feet, which was approved by ATC, so they increased their speed. At 1.27, a call was made by the Medan ATC that read, Merpati-152, you er, turn left heading 240, vectoring for intercept ILS runway 05 from the right side, traffic now rolling. No response came from the aircraft. ATC then said, Indonesia 152, do you read? So they used the wrong call sign the first time. Correct. GA-152 then asked ATC to repeat the, the initial request, at which point ATC said, Turn left heading er, 240235, now vectoring for intercept ILS runway 05. FYI, that's exactly how it reads. All those little pauses I had in there are actually in there. At 1.28 p.m., the captain asked the approach controller if they were clear of the mountainous area northwest of Medan, which was confirmed by the air traffic control, and then they were instructed to continue turning left to a heading of 215. To be clear of headings, we're talking of the 360 degrees, 0 being dead north, 90 being dead east, 180 being dead south, 270 being dead west. At 1.29 p.m., GA-152 was instructed to descend to 2,000 feet, and the crew acknowledged. At 1.30, GA-152 was instructed to turn right to a heading of 046 degrees and to report the localizer, to which... Which G would have lined them up with the 05 runway. Right. GA-152 acknowledged this, but misread the heading when reading back, saying... Turning right to heading 040, Indonesia 152, check established. At 1.30 and 33 seconds, while turning left, the first officer reminded the captain to turn right. Two seconds later, GA-152 asked air traffic control if their turn was to the left or to the right. At 1.30 and 39 seconds, air traffic control replied, Turning right, sir. This was acknowledged by GA-152. The aircraft began to, ring, to roll to wings level. At 1.30 and 51 seconds, air traffic control asked if GA-152 was turning left or right again. GA-152 said, We are turning right now. The aircraft was rolling through wings level to a right bank at the time, and the heading was 135 at 2,035 feet. At 1.31 and 5 seconds, air traffic control instru instructed GA-152 to continue turning left. GA-152 said, er, confirming turning left, we're starting to turn right now. At this time, the aircraft descended below the assigned altitude of 2,000 feet. At 1.31 and 32 seconds, the right wing struck a tree, removing 9 feet of the right wing, rendering the aircraft uncontrollable while at 1,550 feet. The final impact of the aircraft was 600 meters away from that first impact, with the tree in a ravine. Miranda has a lot of questions. Yeah. Can I ask them? That's the story up to impact. 
Okay. I have a few questions. Okay. And <laughs> I was just writing them down while you were talking. I'm like, wait, I don't get it. <laughs> she was furiously writing this whole time. <laughs> okay. So, number one, why did they not get, uh, what is it called? Sent, just sent to another yeah, airport. Yeah, sent to another airport if visibility was below what it should have been at that airport. This is a question that comes up in the investigation. The air traffic control for Medan decided to continue operating because it had been days they'd been operating the way that it was. And so that said, they've continued operating using, even though they even had navigational equipment that was only partially, partially operational, they continued to operate using approach vectors. So in other words, the air traffic controller was responsible for giving them their entire approach sequence, speeds, directions, etc., all the way to landing, even though the airport should have been closed. Well, it was working for the past couple of days, so there's... They had no reason to believe they needed to be shut down for that day, because it was no different. So, basically, the airport was functioning when it wasn't supposed to be. Correct. Okay, so, my question, my second question got answered. They're using an ILS approach, right? Yes, they were using an ILS approach. So they didn't but they ha- have to see the runway to land? Correct. They did not, but it still wasn't rated for... Can you define ILS? It's yeah. instrument landing system. We've talked about it before uh, with EA-401. Yeah, they were on an instrument landing system approach. But even then, the instrument landing system at Medan was not rated for the visibility they had. Okay, so I wrote a series of things down. I wrote left, left, right, left. <laughs> and I was like, did they go in a circle? Like, they went left, and they kept going left. And then they had to go right, and for some reason, the controller asked them to go left, and I was like, what? I don't, well, I know we'll get into that. That's, like, super confusing. Yes, it's just as confusing as it sounds. And then they used the wrong call sign. Yeah, the ATC used the wrong call sign. Oh, good lord. Okay. And then, so, did ATC have a radar? ATC did have a radar. However. I'll get into that in the investigation. Okay, that's fine. I just wanted to know if they had a radar. And then, how low were they? Why was no one watching their altitude? That became a mystery that had to be determined by the recorders. Okay, so that'll come up when we go through FDR and CBR. Yes, it will. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? No, what? How did they hit a tree? Wait a minute. Why? (laughs) It happened pretty fast. They were just as flabbergasted, needless to say. Yep. Well, they obviously didn't know how low they were. Correct. And they obviously didn't know where they were going, which wasn't really their fault, because ATC was supposed to be helping them land. But was it their fault? Okay, well, maybe it was their fault. I it, At one point, you said that they asked about what direction they were going. Like, right. they didn't know. So, uh, clearly, right. they weren't listening completely to ATC. Correct. So, interesting, interesting. Yes. We'll dive into the investigation after this little brief message. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now that we've had some dinner and a break, my breath, my breath is like super pasta, you know.
Yay, spaghetti. Diving into the investigation side of this. Immediately after the crash, locals flocked from the area to help and immediately try to rescue people, but as they arrived, it was quickly determined that nobody survived that. It meant that there were 234 people that perished. That would be all 222 passengers and 12 crew. Not on the ground, though, because it was in a remote area. The wreckage was in a location that was inaccessible by car or tracked vehicle. This made it difficult for rescue operations, let alone getting there, to uh, investigate. The investigators arrived shortly after the police and rescue teams arrived. And eventually the investigators were helped by the Australian and French agencies, as well as a handful of others. There were actually quite a few investigative teams involved in this. They quickly noticed that the local people were taking pieces of the wreckage away from the site, which is a big no-no. They ordered that the area be secured and restricted to investigators and rescue officials only. One of the lead investigators on this was friends with both of the flight crew, which is unfortunate. He had to investigate the crash of his friend's flight. That's rough, man. I would have just recused myself. It's too much emotion. No kidding. They quickly found all of the ma- that all of the major parts of the aircraft were in the area, which meant that the aircraft did not break up before impact. Which is good, actually, because then it's easier to investigate. When the right wingtip was severed, the fuel tank was ruptured and fuel was spilled all the way to the final impact area, as they noted by the discoloration in the trees and the foliage all the way from the point of impact to the tree to the point of impact to the rest of the airplane. thought that was interesting. The aircraft mostly disintegrated on impact, but several large parts were still intact, including part of the cockpit. And they were going pretty fast, right? Yeah, they were going above the the normal approach speed at that point. They were still at 250 knots. Because they were just trying to figure out where they were going. Right. One knot is exactly 1.151 miles per hour. So, in other words, one knot is a little more than a mile per hour. So 250 knots equates to 287.69 miles an hour. That is not slow. That is not slow. They're almost 300 miles an hour. And it would make sense that they, like, disintegrated on impact. Yep. They examined the area where the cockpit was located and recovered some of the instruments. Because the instruments on this aircraft were electronic and not analog, the instruments on the A300 were known to freeze on impact. So that means they were actually showing the indications that the aircraft had on impact rather than a dead zero reading that an analog gauge would have. Which is handy because as people were carrying off parts of the plane, they could not locate the black boxes. Right. It took 22 days to find the CVR and FDR, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, tangled up in a bunch of tree roots at the edge of the crash site. Right. Yeah, but they're also on a mountain, right? Yeah. Yes. So it would be kind of hard getting up and down to try to figure out where that went. Yeah, and so the first part of their investigation, they had to perform w- just You're making do without of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they had to make do without for a while. Because these gauges were frozen in place, they were able to find the engine indicators, which showed that the engines were in go-around power. In other words, they were in an increased throttle position, which meant that they were intentionally trying to get themselves out of a bad situation. Like they saw it last minute and tried to pull up to get yep. not hit the mountain? Exactly. Yep. And then hit the mountain instead. Yep. 
Initially, the investigators were unable to find the black boxes of the aircraft, so they turned to the air traffic control recordings. It was noted that the airport was below its minimal operational visibility and should have been closed by the investigators. The approach controller was using the incorrect phraseology on the recording when addressing the flight and giving vectors. Instead of using very clear phraseology, especially in the case of an emergency, he was rather asking questions than giving them instructions. So he was asking the flight crew where they were going instead of saying, go here, turn here, that type of thing? Correct. When he noticed that things were wrong, instead he asked the flight questions that indicated he noticed something wrong, but didn't dictate that they needed to follow an instruction to get them out of a bad situation. The air traffic controller had used the wrong call sign because a similar call sign was used on a flight in the area earlier in the day, and the key piece of information from the right was not repeated to the flight crew while using the correct call sign. To aid in this explanation, we have a picture from the report up on our website. It is a map. In green, it shows what the normal landing configuration for this airport is. This is assuming that planes are landing and taking off in the same direction. However, this particular day, they were having flights take off in an opposite direction than they were landing. Because of this, they had to approach the airport from a different angle. So instead of, in this picture, going around to the left and approach by, and approach by turning to their left and lining up with the runway, instead, they had to turn right to be facing the runway. This was not conveyed by air traffic control when he had to repeat the message after getting the call sign wrong. Well, yes, but he did that when he asked them to turn left. So when he asked them to turn left, originally... So you can see here, well, our point is he got the wrong call sign the first time he asked them to turn left. But he didn't reiterate what direction they're approaching the airport from. So when he made the initial call, he said Marpetti 152, which was the call sign of the airplane earlier in the day. Um, instead of Garuda 152, so they weren't listening to the message. When he said Marpetti 152, his words were, turn left heading 240, vectoring for the for intercept ILS runway 05 from the right side. And he did not say that from the right side when he addressed Garuda or Indonesia 152 when they asked to repeat. So they didn't understand that they were coming from the right side traffic, making right turns to final rather than left which is why they didn't catch it when they were supposed to turn right Mm -hmm. they just thought they were supposed to keep turning left because that's how they usually get into the airport that is the normal approach pattern for the airport so in this picture you can see in green their normal approach the blue is what air traffic was dictating for them to do and orange is the path that they ultimately took And each of those blue dashed arrows is every time air traffic control said, do this, do that. I'm going to pause for a second, and I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to show elevator music. Yeah, he's elevator. Excuse. So he just went up to what we have on our website. We have this map. It makes perfect sense. So for those of you... 
So I can kind of be like, this is what it looks like. There's a series of blue arrows. The first one is when they called the wrong call sign. The second one, he was like, okay, no, you guys, Garuda, you guys turn left. And they're like, okay, we're turning left. And then they asked, the air traffic control asked them to turn again. And they're like, okay, we're going to keep turning left. The fourth one is when he asked them to turn right and they would have lined up with the runway. Well, they kept turning left because that's what they were used to because he never repeated that that's how they were going to get to the airport. So eventually he was like, oh no, turn left. And that's the little fifth arrow on the bottom. It, it says fifth turn instruction on, next to it. That's how he tried to get them away from the mountains so that they can come back and land at the airport. But they kept turning right, and because they kept turning right, you'll see their path stops, and that's where they crashed into the mountain. We're trying to explain this as, as best, best as, as we, we can. can without visuals. Because this is very, very confusing if you don't have a visual. So go to our website, look at the visual, it will make sense. That said, the readout for the turn of 046, when they were supposed to turn final while being said 040, was still read back correct as a turn to the right by the first first officer. officer. So the first officer acknowledged that they should be turning right. Yes. But they didn't. Yet the airplane impacted the mountain 17 nautical miles away from the airport, heading in the wrong direction. Which is why investigators were completely puzzled. Why would they be going in the wrong direction? The radar was used for vectoring... But it was outdated and only refreshed every 12 seconds. As opposed to the industry normal of every five seconds. That's why he didn't know where they were. 12 seconds isn't enough. It's enough for standard cruise flight monitoring of airplanes. But for approach, where they're making critical turns in short short amount of time, they need to be refreshing a lot more frequently. Especially if the pilots can't see. Right. This is why ACDC didn't notice the incorrect turn or the altitude changes until the aircraft was already in a very dangerous situation. They should have just closed the airport. They should have. And diverted them to somewhere else. They should have, but they opted not to. The controller did not notify the flight crew about their descent below 2,000 feet when he noticed it. Instead, he asked them questions that didn't help their situation. It was far too late. You gotta be assertive. Say, turn this way don't say are you turning this way climb to x y and z climb immediately that's normally what you'd say the verbiage is climb immediately you would say garuda or indonesia 152 climb immediately well that's like the point of atc's job is to make sure that they don't planes don't collide with each other and that they're at an appropriate as like for if unless there's something wrong with the aircraft right right making sure they're at an appropriate altitude so they don't crash right one of their many functions but one of their main functions yes the wreckage was recovered from the area by several agencies and teams such as the army and air force and were taken to the garuda hangar at medan for observation but most of the crucial pieces were actually examined at the crash site because it was too difficult to go back and forth for the investigators yeah they had crashed on an abandoned rice paddy which are not easy to traverse Right. It's a pain. As the time was passing and there was growing concern that somebody walked away with the black boxes unnoticed. But just days later, the black boxes were found tangled in the roots of a large tree and under some metal wreckage at the crash site while they were trying to pull these pieces of metal away. 
The FDR data they recovered showed that the captain entered the incorrect heading into the autopilot after the first first officer read back the correct right turn instruction. It's unknown how the aircraft descended below the assigned altitude, but it was likely selected incorrectly. They presume that the pilot that entered the altitude when they were assigned 2,000 set their altitude on the autopilot below 2,000, so the airplane drifted below that altitude, but it was entered incorrectly, and they found that the autopilot's likelihood to fail was a 1 in over 2 billion chance. So basically impossible. So it was their fault that the aircraft was as low as it was. Yes. But even so, and I'm sure you'll get into this, mm-hmm. how were they not watching to, to see where they were? So yes, I will get into that. On the CVR recordings, it was noted that the captain asked the first officer to check the air conditioning right after the turn instructions were given, which had him distracted from duties during that crucial moment and caused a deviation from the standard operating procedures of of the airline, where the first officer verifies that the turn was entered correctly, and it also caused him to probably miss the descent input that was assigned for 2,000 feet, and instead they drifted below. Until the aircraft was in a very dangerous situation, then he noticed. So did you really need air conditioning? It was hot. I'm uncomfortable. Right. Well, you're dead now, so hope it was worth it. Yep, this delayed the first officer in noticing the incorrect turn and led to ATC communication confirming the turn instructions, further confusing the flight crew. That said, what I found interesting in the report is they did note that the air conditioning system from September 1996 until the crash in 1997, was reported as not working 78 times. That is interesting. Okay, but also... It had nothing to do with the crash, it just had him distracted. Well, that, I mean, it it played a part, right? Like, if he didn't have to check the air conditioning, he may have noticed that it was entered incorrectly. You're, You're on approach. Just wait! You're about to land! It right. doesn't matter. Like, literally five more minutes. If you had done everything correctly, five more minutes and you would have been on the ground. But the captain was asking and begging the first officer to check the air conditioning, to which the first officer said, it's working. You know, or it's on. I don't care! But it didn't help. Five minutes! You can't make it five minutes! Right. Okay, rant over. While it's unknown exactly why the captain selected the left turn, it is presumed that he was disoriented in the the smoke and distracted by the heat problem in the cockpit, and he lost his situational awareness, and he believed that he was entering the left traffic pattern, the green line on our our chart, for the airport rather than the right, meaning that he thought that they were further north and on the other side of the airport, which would require a left turn to final rather than a right turn. This is also why he asked... Are we clear of the mountains to the northwest of the airport? Because he thought he was much further north when he was making the initial left turns. Because it was noted that on the CVR, he said, man, why are we turning so soon? He thought they were turning into terrain, when in reality they were much further south than they were. And because, well, if he thought that, why didn't he ask sooner? Why didn't he ask the ATC, and given ATC should have told him, you're approaching from the right side? 
Right. right. And they didn't. So his situational right. awareness put him further north than he was. Well, but if he had a question on why are we turning so early, why didn't he ask ATC, hey, we're turning earlier than we usual than we seem to usually do. Are we still en route or are we approaching from the same side? I feel like if you think you're turning too early and you can't see anything, say right. something. Say something to ATC. They're the ones who are supposed to help you back to the airport. But he didn't, and so they were in a dangerous situation. Also on the flight data recorder, it was shown that the GPWS, or the... Ground Proximity Warning System. The terrain alarm. Yep. Was only active for the last four to six seconds of the flight before impact. Miranda's freaking out. What? <laughs> That's not enough time! No, it's not. There's like no time to get yourself out of a situation by that time. Right. And when listening to the CVR... Initially, they believed that the GPWS had activated earlier, but when they had the CVR enhanced, they found out that it was actually the first officer's voice that was saying, pull up. He was screaming, pull up. Oh, and the captain didn't do anything? Yep. Dude, crew resource management. I feel like we cover this in every single episode we do. That's because it's extremely critical, and it's become a very big part of the industry. to your first officer. You don't know where you're going. Right. That's why the other person is there with you in the cockpit. Right. The first officer even corrected the captain, saying, we're supposed to be turning right. That was what he read back to the air traffic control. His situational awareness, while it wasn't great, was better than the captain's in this situation. He was trying to follow what air traffic control had going. And that's when the pilot, the pilot flying, the captain, two seconds later called up the air traffic control and said, are we supposed to be turning left or right? They said right. They rolled into a right turn far too late. And I think they covered this in the Air Disasters episode, I think. Um, I haven't watched it in a while, right? But Mm -hmm. if the first officer knew earlier, wasn't he supposed to take over the aircraft? Not necessarily, and he didn't catch it earlier. He mentioned it as soon as he noticed, because he was already distracted by this air conditioning problem that the captain had him worrying about. Yeah, but if he was the one saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, why didn't he just say, my aircraft, and do it himself? There's nothing he could have done at that point. At that point, it was far too late. They saw the terrain in the smoke. They had about 1,500 feet worth of reaction time in the smoke before they were going to impact. That's what they saw. And the A300's so a big plane, so it takes time to react to whatever input you put. So the pilot, the captain, immediately put it in to go around power and pulled the stick back, but it was too far too late. It's way too big of a plane to react that quickly. Back to the GPWS. It was checked during its routine maintenance for operation per the maintenance standards, but it was unclear if a functional check was performed during the last e-check. I find this verbiage extremely confusing. Functional check and an operational check are two different things in their maintenance procedures for Garuda. A functional check just means you make sure that it turns on and activates. You do not make sure that it actually does what it's supposed to do in a bad situation. They can't confirm if an operational check, which is supposed to check that, if it will do what it needs to do in a terrain problem... They can't confirm if that was checked at the last C-check. The last C-check is the big heavy check they do on the airplane. They tear everything down, look at every single piece, and 
do any major updates they need to do to the airplane to make sure that it, it is still maintains its airworthiness to the best of its ability. I feel like that's an important thing to check. It is. Did they... I don't know if you answered that question, to this question, excuse me, but did they check any of the other planes to see if they had the same issue as this flight? Here's what they determined. Investigators determined that the GPWS was not rated for warnings of the low terrain in the vicinity of Medan at the time, specifically. It was nothing wrong with the GPWS itself. It was functioning. It was determined that because of the modes they had set for flaps, it was not reading the terrain correctly for their situation. There's two modes set to A and to B. One's for flaps going up, one's for flaps going down. And they had to A set for flaps up. So it was assuming that they were climbing out, so it was looking for a climb into terrain. The GPWS and the A300, because it wasn't into B, wasn't looking for a descent into terrain. Why aren't they just the same setting? They are now. Thank God. <laughs> I feel like it should just look for any terrain you're going to crash into. And the other problem that they had was that the hills in the area were not mapped correctly for the GPWS uh... and the A300. And because they were not mapped correctly, they were not called out by the GPWS in time. The GPWS didn't even know they were there. Nope. And in that four to six second range that it was supposed to go off, it was never heard in the CVR either. Yep. I bet that got fixed. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The aircraft ultimately performed a controlled flight into terrain. Or a sea fit, as it's known in aviation. Tis the technical term. It's a very unfortunate thing that happens more often than we would ever like to admit in aviation, where somebody literally flies the airplane controlled and unknowingly into terrain. Yeah, that's when... The flight we talked about a couple weeks ago, the one in Durango, yeah, that they had controlled flight into terrain. Yep. They didn't intentionally crash. Right. They were unaware of their situation, and they controlled flight into terrain. See fit. And that's why they had terrain alarms to begin with. But now, <laughs> if they don't work correctly, or if they don't, if the airplane's not in the proper configuration... It's basically useless. Yeah. Yep. So now we'll get into the findings. There were 29 findings on this report. I've summed up what I find to be the most important. In those findings were the ATC controller's medical was overdue, but this did not affect the accident. I thought that was interesting. He was fully rated for air traffic control. However, his medical was overdue. I find it interesting that they have to have a medical. I thought it was interesting that that was called out in the findings, even though it really had nothing to do with the incident. I think it makes total sense that they have to have a medical. It's one of the most stressful jobs on the face of the planet. You need to have a psyche valve. Yep. Well, and, and make sure you're in good health, because if something were to happen and you get discombobulated somehow, a plane can crash. So I understand why it's important. I just didn't realize that they had to have one. Shout out to all air traffic controllers for doing the job that none of us want to do. It is a very tough job. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, if you're an air traffic controller, like contact us on Facebook or something. We'll give you like a, a kudos. Yeah. That said, basically, while they were doing the investigation, this came up because they were doing basically an audit of Medan's air traffic control procedures and how they handled everything. Obviously, it was a problem. In that, they found the Polonia Airport was operated with less than required number of personnel in the air traffic control facility. How many were in there? 
They didn't specify that. They specified there were too few. So, okay, not only were they supposed to close the airport with because of bad visibility, but right. they also didn't have enough people in there to guide all the flights back to the airport, which is a double whammy on ATC. Like, no, no, no. Like, your airport should have been shut down. Right. That was the next point. The runway was not closed at Polonia when visibility was 500 meters compared to the minimum required 800 meters. That is a call by air traffic control. They can shut that down anytime. They also, of course, found that the ATC, the air traffic controller, did not have sufficient ongoing or recurrent training, which is interesting because at the time of the accident, during the day, he was the air traffic control manager for the facility at the time, during the day. What? He was basically in charge. During the evening, he was a, a monitoring air traffic controller only. Still, just because you're in a different position at a different time of day, you still retain full capability in your profession. Right. Hopefully. Yep. It was also found that while, they were, while the crew was doing their pre-flight briefing, that the dispatcher that was working with them... While they discussed the conditions at the airport, the VOR that was not functioning properly, and the smoke in the area, they did not discuss it in length to the point that he made it a critical issue that should have stopped the flight from ever taking off in the first place. So you're telling me that really they shouldn't have left the ground, period. Correct, because they already knew the conditions before they left. So not And he did even mention that the airport was operating below its minimum requirements. They left anyways. So you're telling me, not only should the airport have been closed, and they didn't have enough ATC personnel, but the plane shouldn't have taken off, period. Yep. Because it was already under the minimum amount of visual yep. for and the airport. And they knew that taking off. Yep. And so the pilots did that anyway. It was also found that the use of some numeric flight numbers by multiple airlines in the same area caused confusion. Which also is another dumb. factor. Which is why you should have more ATC personnel. Well, no... It, they had multiple flight numbers on the same route that had the same number. I know, but if day. you switch around to different people, they yeah, may not true. have made that mistake, is yep. my point. But he had handled both flights, so he add, it added to the confusion. It was found that the approach controller's instruction to Indonesia 152 to intercept the ILS was incomplete, leaving out from the right, as he had initially said to Merpeti 152. The minimum vectoring chart used by air traffic control was locally published in Medan and was incorrect by 1,000 feet for the terrain in the area. What? So even when the air traffic controller was referencing charts, if he was referencing charts in the area, such as this one that we have up on our website, the terrain that was shown in the area was 1,000 feet lower than it actually was in real life. That's extremely dangerous. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have so much anxiety right now. <laughs> it was also found that the flight crew deviated from company operating procedures that required the pilot flying to change the autopilot at altitude and the first officer to call when approaching assigned altitudes. So the first officer should have called when they were 1,000 above, 500 above their assigned altitude of 2,000 feet. Because he was distracted by the air conditioning situation the captain had put him in, he never made those call-outs and didn't look down at the altitude until they were well past 2,000 feet. It was found that the aircraft turned to the left instead of 
the instructed right turn and contrary to the correct readback of the first officer. It was found that the captain's instruction to check the air conditioning at a crucial point of flight caused the first officer, the pilot monitoring, to miss the incorrect turn. Yeah, that's another thing. If this was bothering you the entire flight, why didn't you check on it during cruise flight? Right. When you don't have that much to do. Landing seems like a very bad idea to do this. Yes, especially while they were, you know, fighting for proper communication and poor visibility. It was found that the radar refresh rate of 12 seconds was way too slow for the approach vectoring they were, they were performing at Medan. It was found that the air traffic control did not notify the flight crew of nearing obstacles or their descent below assigned altitude properly. It was found that a lack of situational awareness of the captain or pilot flying from initial approach vector on was a problem. It was found that the flight crew's attention to the lateral position likely distracted from the vertical position monitoring. So once, even once the air conditioning spat was over, they were worrying too much about this left turn right thing and communicating with back and forth with air traffic control on three separate occasions about this left turn right turn as well as with each other. They didn't pay attention to the fact that the airplane was dipping below 2,000 feet. The aircraft did not capture the assigned 2,000 foot altitude, likely because the wrong altitude was selected on the autopilot. An autopilot malfunction was over a 2 billion to 1 chance, like I said. That was in the findings. So, maybe I missed this earlier, but what did they put in instead? We don't know. There is no actual But it was below 2,000 feet, right? So, yes. What I can tell you is it it may have been a a poor choice. I mean, it could have been a mistake. It could have been set to 1,000 by mistake or what have you. But it may have also been an expectation of the pilot having done this approach before. To slowly go down as he was turning. He likely expected that he was going to get a call to go below 2,000 feet before they ever reached it. So he may have already set his altitude to zero, be it that 2,000 above is not very far. And he expected that he was going to get a call to go below 2,000 feet and reach the ILS before he ever actually got to 2,000. But because of their situation... You still shouldn't anticipatorily enter enter altitudes. Correct. And so, you know, it it may have just literally been a mistake. Somebody maybe accidentally set it to 1,000 instead. But because we don't know, that is also a scenario that may have happened. It kind of makes sense if he knew, if he thought he knew where he was going, and then he was like, oh, we should catch the ILS here. We need to be at this altitude, when instead he didn't know where he was going. Right. So they were lower than, or he put them lower than they should have been to begin with. Right. And the final finding I had, of course, was the GPWS only showed the warning for the last four to six seconds, but was not heard on the CBR, and it's unknown why it did not sound. However, it was found that the GPWS was not suitable for the terrain in the area. The verbatim probable cause. There was confusion regarding turning direction of left turn instead of right turn at critical position during radar vectoring that reduced the flight crew's vertical awareness while they were concentrating on the aircraft's lateral changes. These caused the aircraft to continue descending below the assigned altitude of 2,000 feet and hit treetops at 1,550 feet above sea level. I find this probable cause, this is verbatim how it is written, to be too vague. It kind of makes sense. So I don't think, so the recommendation section in this is good 
It says sum up things to fix. But I do believe that the probable cause wasn't the only fact. It doesn't call out the only several factors that happened in this incident. It was a perfect storm of so many things. Now, granted, you don't want a probable cause to read very long, but I do think that the verbiage and the, the writing of this probable cause wasn't well enough written for what actually happened. I agree. So the recommendations that came of this incident, there were quite a few, and we've kind of made it a little more succinct. So first off, Indonesia's National Transportation Safety Committee recommended that there be a review of the use of radar vector approach procedures for Polonia from the south and increase the radar refresh rate to meet ICAO standards. I.e. 5 seconds instead of 12. That's more than twice the... Never mind. Yep. They recommended installation of minimum safe altitude warnings at Medan. So that the air traffic controllers would get an alert every time an airplane is getting too close to a terrain or an obstacle. They recommended a revision of regulations to further require airports to close when minimum visibility is not met. So they don't land at an airport where they can't see anything. This basically takes away the discretion of the air traffic control and makes it required. Further required, it already was, but now it has to be followed. They recommended avoiding using similar flight numbers in the same routes and areas. Makes sense, so you don't get confused and call someone by the wrong call sign. They recommended a review of manpower requirements for Medan. So you have enough people. At the air traffic control facility, because there was just too few. They were having to do a lot. They recommended reinforcing training of phraseology per ICAO guidelines for air traffic control. I feel like this applies to the pilots, too, because they were just saying, turning right now, turning left now, and while that's clear, it really doesn't because they weren't clear of the heading or Mm -hmm. where they were, this just adds to the confusion. They recommended ensuring implementation of ongoing and recurrent training of air traffic control, and they recommended ensuring that the ground proximity warning system was functional and operation checks are performed in accordance with maintenance standards and are mandatory. You can't just skip over and say, oh, that, that probably works. Yep, all these things led to a perfect storm of this airplane doing a controlled flight into terrain. And it's unfortunate. You can't blame any one person or one thing for this. You can say any one part of it is stupid, because it was. You take away one factor from any of this, and it may not have happened. But it was so many things that led to this being a problem that it happened. I think it's kind of stupid that they weren't supposed to take off to begin with, and the airline decided that they should. That's correct the airline had to make money and there was pressure and the discussion was just too short didn't have enough and that they didn't discuss going to a different airport earlier if they knew they couldn't get in with good visibility at this airport right and that was garuda indonesia flight 152 we hope you have a good thanksgiving week and uh we want to thank you so much for listening your support is greatly appreciated Go give us all sorts of likes and subscribes and good reviews Good reviews on all of the platforms. Keep listening. Enjoy it. Give us feedback. We're enjoying that. Helps us for sure. Remember to visit our website, harlandingspodcast.com. You can go ahead and see all of our blog posts, not just this one, but this one will very much help you visualize what happened. 
Also, make sure if you have any suggestions or if you want to give us feedback, you can on the website, but you can also email us at info at hardlandingspodcast.com. Keep your airspeed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.